All right. Hello and welcome to the Morgan.xyz podcast. I'm here with Hunter Walk from Homebrew. Hunter, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, say, let's just dive right in. Hunter has asked me not to show him the questions, so he has no idea what questions I'm going to ask him. And I'm just going to dive in. I actually want to start kind of at the beginning. So first things first, what inspired you to move from what you were doing at Google and YouTube uh, to investing? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I finally left Google towards the end of 2012, beginning of 2013. I wasn't seeking to get into venture. I mean, we started Homebrew because my partner Sach and I had worked together before, wanted to work together again, and felt like that there, um, uh, well, maybe maybe there's a shrinking sort of capital gap for seed stage. That's to say there's a lot of money chasing seed stage deals. There's not necessarily commensurate growth and sort of the counsel and commitment in the sense of there's a lot of investors making a large number of small investor small investments each year, but not as many funds that um, sort of really uh, you know take sort of board level involvement with these companies. But to back up a, a stage, um, I think it was merely in my head starting to shift from the idea of doing to helping. So, uh, namely, you know, instead of betting on my ideas or the ideas of my team, seeing generations of people um, who had grown up with technology in a different context than I had and starting to realize that like their vision for the world was pretty cool. Um, and maybe I could, you know, sort of take this special set of skills I had acquired and, you know, I'll put my, my uh, Liam Nielsen taken voice um, and, and help them build companies that they'd be proud of as opposed to just being sort of on the inside of companies that I could be proud of. That's a good answer to that question. <laughs> um, cool. And so then when did you and Satya originally connect up? Yeah, so I think one of the best things about working at um, sort of a, you know, growing, uh, you know, what do you, want, what do you want to call, like, the Google, the Facebooks, like... Small, co- small, com- company small of, Like, com- you know, <laughs> companies of their, you know, companies of their era, you know, type of stuff, is you end up with a really amazing tribe of people. Um, so Sacha joined Google in early 03, and I joined later in 03, and we worked together um, basically uh, on the same team and then under the same VP in, in the AdSense group um, until he left uh, at the beginning of 2007, which is when I went over to um, run product at YouTube. So we had a little bit more than three years together, um, um, working pretty closely, and um, he left to go back to venture for four years, and then ran product at Twitter for about a year and a half. And through that time, we had maintained a personal friendship, uh, family friends as well. Um, and we'd always just kind of like, you know, there's there's people you can imagine working with again. There's people who you hope you you know sort of encounter professionally, and there's people you could imagine starting something with. And um, Sacha and I were always on sort of one another's like man, it would be fun to start something. We didn't know what that ever meant. Um, but finally, once uh, he left Twitter and I was thinking about leaving Google, we had the chance to start answering that question from a, you know, a blank sheet of paper versus you know, him being at Battery Ventures and saying, like, why don't you come start something here or da-da-da. I was like, that was always felt like one of us was trying to pull the other yeah. towards what we were doing at the time versus saying, okay, if we're really going to say we want to work together, mm-hmm. let's collaboratively create that yeah. versus, you know, you being excited about something and just convincing me, you know, it's the right time to join you. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, and interesting to see, actually, I mean, there has been so many companies formed from people that work together at Google or Twitter or Facebook or some of these companies that yeah. they have that, that network there. I, I certainly look, I, you know, I meet tons of founders and privileged, you know, and fortunate to, to, um, get to meet folks who are passionate about what they're doing, you know, and have a chance to talk to them about whether we could be helpful to them. Um, I definitely, you know, people who've worked together before, um, I think is, you know, 
a, a positive signal. Um, it doesn't have to be from a name brand company. It doesn't have to be even their last experience. You know, it could be, hey, we worked together three years ago, then we were each at these startups, now we're leaving these to come do this. Um, I think folks who, folks who uh, you know, uh, oh, hey, we went to school together, um, or oh, hey, we've always been friends, but haven't even sort of um, spent some time to do a side project together. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, you know, you can de-risk your founder relationship if you, um, at least like on the side, you know, take a few weeks, take a few months, and try to build something, and just see how it feels. Uh, there's a lot of I have a lot of wonderful friendships um, where those people probably wouldn't want me as their co-founder, um, and uh, it would be a shame to find you know you find that out like yeah. after you've been working <laughs> together for a while. Um, and so when people come in and they sort of say hey, we met a month, we were introduced you know a month ago by a friend and we really hit it off. To me, that's you know that's a risk. That's I, a every, every seed investor has different risks that they're comfortable with. Like founder found, co-founder fit is one of the risks that I'm not as excited about. Yeah, that's a really good point. Actually, that distinction because um, and I, I think of this myself with my friends. Like there's some friends that are like great friends of mine, but I already know like probably wouldn't want to work with them necessarily. And then others that maybe I would, but yeah, you don't know until you do. And sometimes it's not even just the it's it's a di- really dynamic question because it's not just the relationship it's the are we the right co-founders for business xyz right so there there are plenty of things that Sacha and i might have even been mutually interested in where we wouldn't have been the right co-founders we were too maybe duplicative right okay so now diving into a little bit more of your experience dealing with um founders and starting homebrew uh, what has surprised you the most about your experience so far? doesn't have to be something really good or really bad, but what is it that isn't necessarily, uh, didn't necessarily happen the way that you thought it would? Well, the positive surprise has been, um, I've been, uh, I, I was worried when I started this that one of the risks to sort of doing this for the rest of my career would be, um, did I encounter on a daily basis enough teams that I was excited by to not just make an investment, right? Because I knew I could find six to eight investments a year, but would I need to go through you know ninety nine horrible pitches to find that you know one quote unquote magical investment, or would I be generally excited by you know the the, the founders who walked through my door? Um, I didn't know. I suspected that you know if you kind of know what you stand for and you can do a good job filtering not just for quality but for fit early on that. You know, most of the conversations would be interesting, engaging, um, but I wasn't sure. And so it's been a, a, a big surprise, a uh, positive surprise, that um, I, I meet dozens and dozens of amazing founders, you know, every week, every month. And um, the source of all my sort of, you know, optimism and I guess also my neuroses is that the number of startups I root for ends up being way larger than the number of startups I can invest in. Um, so it's not sort of this like, oh, if you're in the portfolio, you know, I love you. And if not, I hope you die. You know, like <laughs> there's plenty of people that for one reason or another, like we pass on us, they pass on us. Like, I mean, we pass on them, they pass on us, whatever. Um, and they go off to build wonderful businesses and that's fine. Um, you know, from a fun mechanic standpoint, uh, I'm really happy with the people that we've had the privilege to invest in. And at the end of the day, like, you know, my returns are going to be generated by the, the work with them, you know, not the, um, you know, the, the energy I spend outside of that. But I, but I feel like it's worth spending energy outside of the portfolio 
um, because the you know the community matters to me as well. Yeah. So I guess that would be the second surprise that it's sort of um, as intense as the portfolio work is, and we spend the majority of our time you know sort of with the portfolio um, that we've been able to keep and maintain a kind of grow the pie, hmm. you know, pay it forward attitude, yeah. um, and not just become like purely you know coin operated transactional. Sure. Yeah. Because um, like, I didn't know I didn't know if I'd start seeing people as you know. Uh, ownership times valuation, sure. you know, <laughs> like it becomes very mechanical. And it's yeah. like, um, you know, that, that, that hasn't been the case. Yeah. That's great to hear. So the magic, the magic is still there. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, that was the other thing I like, go, oh, Hey, year one, it's amazing. But like year two, you become more jaded yeah. and like, you know, so yeah. we're almost six years in, like, uh, I think, you know, the, we're past the point of, you know, being naive, right? Yeah. So I think, you know, there's different things we have to do in years five through 10 than we had to do years one through five. There's different things about the startup scene in 2018 and what founders need from us than maybe, you know, when we started in 2013. And there's different things as we head into our third fund, you know, that we think about than we did maybe in our first fund. But like fundamentally, um, the reason we're in this business and what we believe Homebrew can be for the founders we back, um, you know, uh, matches, you know, quite accurately, you know, sort of what we wrote on a piece of paper, you know, six years ago. Mm, very cool. So this actually dovetails perfectly into my next question, which is, um, and you've been able to see this over a good time period. How do you think the dynamics have changed for a founder uh, raising a seed round? And let's just look at over the last maybe maybe year or two. Obviously, there's been huge changes over six years, but over the last year or two, if a founder was to say, hey, how have things changed? What do I need to do differently? What do you think some of those changes are? I think there's been a lot of positive changes in the ecosystem over the last few years. Um, you know, the, the data is starting to show, I mean, obviously I think faster, faster and more, but the data is starting to show that dollars aren't just concentrating in the hands of, you know, a small group of homogenous founders, geographically, gender, background. Um, I think attention has been paid to, not just from a like, morality sake, but um, the tremendous business opportunity there is in sort of investing in um, founders uh, you know, outside of the sort of narrow pattern matching that may have uh, occurred to date. Uh, I think that's good. Um, the industries that these founders are innovating on top of has changed dramatically. I think there's now investors come with much more of a prepared mind to um, seeing, you know, sort of uh, uh, verticals that predate the PC um, being ready for new types of technology, agriculture, um, construction, uh, 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 logistics, you know, things that before yeah. um, had a, you know, physical component and you sort of wondered like, oh, is this, you know, this industry is not changing or it's hard to change this industry. Now for a variety of reasons, you see, you know, sort of multi-billion dollar companies being created um, within those. Um, there's, you know, there's more, more money available, um, which also, I guess, sort of means like more confusion as to um, should I optimize for terms? Should I optimize for, you know, a big brand name fund? Should I optimize for a fund that understands like my industry and has invested before in my vertical? Uh, you know, I guess I'd say two things. Never take money from people that you don't want to, you know, live with essentially, yeah. right? So like, um, you shouldn't uh, take money from people who you think are uh, operating by a different set of values or different goals uh, than your company is. Like, focus very much on, on investor alignment, especially early on. Um, and then don't um, like don't over obsess about like perfect. You know, find the people you want to work with. Come up with a deal structure that uh, you take a little bit of pain, they take a little bit of pain, and then you get to work 
mm-hmm. um, you know, building building the company uh, together because uh, you know you can all afford then to be long term greedy. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, uh, no matter how hard and stressful fundraising sometimes can feel like, it's actually the building the company that's hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you know. Uh, there's a lot of information out there, which is great. I mean, when I moved out to the Valley 20 years ago, this world was all more like opaque and relationship driven. So I'm glad that it's more transparent now. Um, but ultimately, you know, the the value gets created in building your business, not in, you know, great medium posts, not in, uh, you know, the terms of your last round, you know, it's, what are the terms of your next round going to be? Yeah. Yeah. Really good point. Okay. So here's a, a big juicy question. Uh, <laughs> you see a lot of pitches from seed stage startups. Um, is there one mistake that you see founders making over and over again in oh, their pitches? Okay. <laughs> I told you it was a big juicy I question. You, I, <laughs> no exit slides in seed decks. Do not put exit slides in seed decks. I sort of feel like that, you know, the, hey, and, you know, here's who we could sell to or here's some comps or, and, you know, Da, da, da. I think that's like sort of, you know, what's the, there's some phrase, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's essentially like call the devil by his name and he yeah. will appear. So <laughs> I sort of think that if you are, you know, uh, on day one telling me sort of how your company is going to get acquired and by whom, like, I think you are already at least subconsciously not thinking about building a long-term independent mm-hmm. company. Yeah. Um, and I just think it adds zero value in a, in a, in a, in a seed stage deck yeah. uh, to see those slides. Um, so yeah, no seed, uh, no, no exit, yeah. no exit on seed decks. <laughs> um, another thing is I think, uh, uh, I care a lot about the why, not just the how. Mm-hmm. And so, man, the founders we meet with, they're all smart. They're all engaging. You know, they, they could be doing a variety of things, helping me understand, you know, not just, um, you know, why this could be a valuable business, but like, why do you want to spend 10 years of your life on it? Um, because it's going to be hard regardless. Even the curves that look like they were up and to the right, if you zoom in, you see that they're actually pretty jagged, right? Like there's up, up, up days and down days. And for me, you know, I really like to know that um, there's a commitment um, to seeing this through that goes beyond just the sort of, you know, economic value creation. Um, that's why we sometimes say that uh, we love founders who uh, disrupt with love as opposed to contempt. Like you, you're definitely going to upset the apple cart. Like any successful business at least pisses somebody off. But, um, but we want to believe that you're doing it because you're trying to get to a place that you think is, you know, uh, positive for the, uh, you know, the customer, for the industry you're innovating on top of, rather than just kind of like the three slide pitch of, you know, XYZ industry is broken. Here's, here's how we're going to fix it. You know, and here's why we're going to be worth a lot of money. Like yeah. uh, some of those businesses are fine, but they're, you know, we don't have to be all things to all people. And so, um, if that's like any founders who are that mechanical about what they're building and why they're building it, you know, we're just, we're, they deserve great investors. We're probably not the right ones for them. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. It actually makes me think of something. There's been a question I think I hear a lot from founders that are putting together their seed decks, which is, should we put uh, projections in our deck? And hey, we know because we've read blog post X or Y that a year from now we should be at 50K MRR. How do you feel about that if you have a pre-revenue seed stage startup giving you projections? Yeah. So obviously those projections are usually either way too high or way too low. <laughs> Usually too high. Yeah. Uh, and just given the average, you know, <laughs> failure rate of startups, they don't see year five. Um, I guess I think about it in two ways. Uh, I don't mind seeing them, but I want to use them to talk about something, mm-hmm. not just to take on face value. The face value is 
do you understand what a venture scale business looks like, mm-hmm. right? So if you're sort of projecting five years out revenue of $12 million in year five, like you are not, fam- you're, you're not familiar enough with um, the growth rate that venture capital requires. Um, and that's just a, a fit question, right? Like I, you know, I want to help that person understand, uh, hey, venture may not be the right thing for you um, before you take it because you're going to get trapped between your investors' expectations and what you think uh, you want, how you want to build this business. It's not saying like, oh, you know, go add a zero on the end or make up some numbers. It's like, there's plenty of amazing businesses to be built that'll be somewhere between, you know, zero and $200 million of value own 90% by the founders. Like, you know, I, I, I think venture sometimes oversells itself as like, you know, the only way to build a, or to fund like a real business. Like there's lots of other ways, including revenue. Um, if it's a projection where then the founder says like, let me help, let me talk to you about sort of what, like what actually has to happen for these numbers to look at all real. Like, here are the three big sensitivities in the model. Like, here's, um, we are going to know a lot more in year two because that's at the point at which, like, we think we're at commercial feasibility. You know, like, I'm happy to use that as a way to talk about how should I understand your business. Um, I'm less interested in looking at it as a, like, literal projection yeah. <laughs> of, um, of your execution. Yeah. Yeah. Great. That makes a lot of sense. What do you uh, think? What do I think? Yeah. I agree with the point you made about showing that people understand the mechanics of the business because I think, well, first off, I think people too often believe that if they show some wild and crazy projection that people are going to, for some reason, believe it. Mm -hmm. I think any savvy investor is going to go, well, you have zero revenue now and you're going to have 50K MRR 12 months from now. I would challenge anyone that thinks that's actually true. It's more interesting to see, so that's what you aspirationally want to do, and how do you get there? So yeah, less about the actual number, more about, okay, if we are able to do this, here's how we can do it. Here's the things we're going to try. Hey, if this doesn't work, we're going to try this. Because like you said, there's the, um, the good times and the bad times and in the path to get to anything meaningful uh, there was a, could be more bad there was than a good. Great line, there was a great line that Eric Schmidt, who's CEO of Google at the time of the YouTube acquisition, used in sort of all the internal like Google town halls talking about the acquisition. You know, one of the questions he'd get a lot was like, it was, you know, was YouTube really worth, or is YouTube worth $1.6 billion, whatever it was? And he's like, he'd pause for a second and then look and he'd say, no. Uh, that number is either way too high or way too low, and, and we'll know in ten years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's funny. Um, all right, so here we go. So, um, and this is somewhat related to a previous question, but um, there's a lot of talk about the bar being raised for for seed rounds, um, particularly when it comes to revenue. Do you think startups should wait until they have some initial revenue or traction before raising their seed round, or is a great team with a good MVP um, still ready to go out and pitch? So um, we fund businesses across the spectrum. We are sometimes first check into businesses that are pre-revenue. We sometimes see businesses that have raised you know, a few hundred thousand dollars, $750,000, and have started to show revenue. Um, uh, or sometimes we're at the last million dollars into a business that's already you know, at a run rate that could raise an A, but wants to sort of go even further. Um, although I think our sweet spot is sort of more towards you know, being you know, one, to, one to one and a half million of their first kind of zero to three. I think this is a, um, there are two fundamental, uh, I guess, kind of like uh, uh, attributes of companies that are going to impact the answer here. The first is um, the team. 
If it's a repeat founder or a team that is kind of working within their wheelhouse, right? So a bunch of folks who came out of Salesforce to do kind of next generation CRM killer, they're probably going to be able to raise without numbers and raise, you know, sort of enough from the right people to get them to the next milestone because you don't want to get short funded, right? Like nothing ruins a story like data. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're uh, a newer founder or you're working in an area that um, uh, is a little bit more greenfield or, you know, sort of less proven, um, you know, sometimes you have to show some proof of work, right? That can be revenue, that can be uh technology that can be um, uh, proving demand or, you know, starting to build supply side, demand side within a marketplace. And, and, you know, you can't ask every company to bootstrap to do that. So I think in those cases, it's perfectly acceptable to raise um, some money. The, when I hear this complaint, and it usually is phrased as a complaint by entrepreneurs, um, most strongly, it actually happens in two segments. It happens in SaaS, Mm-hmm. And it happens in, let's call it like commerce slash marketplaces. Mm-hmm. And I think in these areas, what the, um, the founders are failing to recognize is that they are building in areas that are increasingly crowded and increasingly mature, mm-hmm. um, where, uh, you know, yes, your sales automation business, like, might be an interesting idea, but I, I'm going to see 80 more sales yeah. automation businesses that look, you know, slightly like you, slightly better than you, slightly worse than you, all at the same stage. And I'm trying to make a decision about which one of these do I fund. Mm -hmm. And so if I don't know a team, you know, like uh, if I'm not betting on the person concretely, um, proof of momentum or proof of like, hey, we've started to build something is a way of signaling to me that you have some degree of product market fit, that you at least um, are sort of executing against that. And so we are happy to fund pre-revenue businesses. but there are some areas where it's like, yeah, hey, go, you know what? Um, I think you'd be better off like showing me some evidence of traction, which doesn't necessarily have to be MRR. It can be something more than a deck. Yeah. Um, what's interesting, in some of those businesses too, after I fund them, I tell them to stop worrying about revenue. Hmm. Because some of these businesses, um, because of that investor milestone, have started to prove revenue, but have gotten there in ways that I don't necessarily think will scale or with a like mm. hodgepodge of customers or just really yeah. understanding yeah. who their customer is. Yeah. And so my idea is, look, if I just led, you know, if I just helped you put together a $3 million round, um, you're going to have to, like, when you raise that, you know, $12 million A round, it's going to be partly based off of your revenue curve, mm. but that's going to be your revenue curve, you know, nine months from now, 18 months from now, 24 months from now. It's not going to be next quarter. And so let's step back and ask the question of, do we need to take a few months, a few quarters to take a step backwards in order to take two steps forward? Mm. Do we really understand who our customer is? Mm. Are we really building you know, uh, a scalable and instrumented you know, customer acquisition funnel? Are we running cohort analysis? Do we understand um, that these people who've signed up and signed their annual contracts, like how do we know that they're going to you know, renew before it all starts to hit a year from now? You know, that type of stuff. Because part of what the, that money affords you is to play the long game. Yeah. Um, and that, that's a little bit different. I, and I also, I mean, frankly, I, I'm not sure every investor would believe that. Maybe some investors would say, like, why interrupt momentum? Or, like, that curve is about the, that's the value creation curve. And I guess I would just say, like, yeah, I mean, it's different for every company, different for every investor. But um, I, I pull as many companies off of the MRR curve yeah. post-funding as I do, like, encourage them to get sure. on the MRR curve. And again, that's not, you know, forever. 
but it's, you know, let's spend, let's at least ask this question. Yeah. Now, I know you felt like you needed to show this revenue going in this direction to raise this round, but I am interested in what this company looks like, you know, one, two, three, ten years from now. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in what this company, what these KPIs look like six months from now. Yeah. If they, um, you know, are the wrong KPIs or we're building this, we're building this engine in the wrong way. It's a really good point you bring up. I think you probably have a unique perspective on it. Do you think maybe some of that comes from your experience at Google and YouTube and building products yourself and seeing uh, what happens when you do kind of like take the time to do the analysis? Because I think there is a rush where it's like as a founder, particularly when you're raising, if you're seeing like any track and you're just trying to double on, double down on whatever is working at that time and you're in a vacuum, but then when you raise the money, now you're in a completely different situation. Like you said, that might not be repeatable. I think it's based on two things. Um, the intersection of which may very well be unique to Homebrew. Um, it's based on the fact that Sacha and I both have, you know, Sacha had a, a you know a venture career as well, but we both have sort of lengthy operating careers in, you know, companies that we entered, you know, at the knee of the curve and got to see really grow and got to understand, um, you know, project life cycles. When's the right time to have a hypothesis, test a hypothesis, and then to double down on it versus, you know, um, not having that sort of evergreen sense of, of building. I think there's also something a little bit different in our model that's actually speaks to sort of incentive structure. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, we're not the only person who does this, but um, I think you get uh, uh, seed investors sort of fall into two buckets. They're either the folks who are trying to uh, get you to product market fit um, and then hand you off to a Series A investor mm-hmm. and sort of try to be helpful. But like, again, they're making dozens of investments a yeah. year. Like the markup is what they're playing for. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, there's some, when a, when a large fund is doing a seed investment, like their goal, they just need you to be a billion dollar company or you don't matter. Yeah. And if you are, they're going to stay on your board forever and so on and so forth. So they're, like, they're just trying to force fit you into uh, yeah. a way of doing things, which yeah. again, generically uh, uh, sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. Our model is a little bit different. We um, enter at seed and we stay most involved, not to the A, but to the B. Mm. So, because I, I think product market fit is still too fragile to sort of step back from these companies. I want them to have a foundation. I want them to have a foundation of a series A and a series B investor. Yeah. They have two investors on the board. They have an independent board member usually by then. Like we're, when we step from the boardroom to speed dial, um, it's a company. It's yeah. not a, you know, uh, 18 months of heat, right? Yeah. And so I'm focused on what are the things that are going to get us three to five years in, mm-hmm. not just mm-hmm. how can I build a curve that allows me then to get the next firm to put money into this company and I can tweet about how so-and-so just led the round sure. for the thing I'm in. So yeah. like our model and the amount of time we spend with these companies is just inherently focused on durability. Yeah. Uh, not um, and, and I think durability is what creates a funding story, mm-hmm. not, you know, not just sort of, um, you know, flash paper, right? Yeah. Like I need to build a furnace. I need to build a fire, yeah. not just flash paper. Yeah. Yeah. Great. That makes a lot of sense. All right. When you think of the best pitch you personally have ever seen, uh, what do you think was one thing that they really, uh, did to hit it out of the park? Okay. I have a bias towards people who tell me I'm wrong. (laughs) So we sometimes have pitches where somebody has connected with us because they have heard us analyze an industry or espouse a certain belief. And they like, they like us as a partner 
but they believe that we've seen something the wrong way. Mm. And their, their pitch isn't the, I read your Medium post and I agree 100%. Their pitch is, hey, I read this, I see you're interested in it, I see you've invested in other companies in this space. We have a unique point of view mm. and we want to tell you why that's right. Mm. So I'm really interested in the one or two insights that a business is based on, because I think those are the fundamental insights that an investor needs to be aligned against. Everything else you will figure out as you go. Mm. Um, you're going to be right or wrong, but you're going to course correct. Uh, maybe you're right about the activities, but you got the sequencing wrong. But there's one or two things that you sort of have to believe mm. um, uh, or share the belief with the entrepreneur. And I, and I especially like when those are... Um, thought of when I'm not the smartest person in the room, you know, when they've been uh, thought differently or more deeply and the person um, connects it back to something that they heard me see, say, or otherwise espouse um, and are able to um, uh, help me think about a problem in a different way. Those are my favorite pitches. Cool. That makes a lot of sense. And that's hard to do, I think, as a founder who's pitching because a lot of times you're trying to make the investor happy so you're nervous about potentially disagreeing with them but at yeah. the same time if you can present your point of view and I tell founders that I mean I tell founders that uh, the process of us working to get to know each other the more that it feels like what it would be to work together yeah. the better a sense we'll each get of whether we're right for each other yeah. the more that it feels like you pitch me then I pitch you mm-hmm. um, you know, perversely, the less likely sure. we are to sort of yeah. find that mutual fit. Yeah. And uh, so let's not worry about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point, actually. And also for yeah, founders that are thinking of pitching, it can be so easy to be in sales mode where it's like, let me tell this person exactly what I think they want to hear versus, hey, let me share my view of the world and see if we agree about it or if we can have a discussion about yeah, it. I'm happy to I'm happy to invest in a founder who is more is more stake than sizzle mm-hmm. and then help them um, increase their sizzle capacity, yeah. you know, because you, there is a sales aspect to being a CEO, um, you know, when they need to, then I am, um, having, you know, sort of, uh, less meaningful interactions with somebody who's really great at the sizzle, but I never quite get my hands on whether there's stake there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. All right. Well, here we go. Last but not least, this question is, uh, it's totally unrelated actually. Okay. Uh, so, uh, and you're definitely not expecting it. Uh, so, well, one thing that most people listening to this might not know uh, is that Hunter actually worked on the Conan O'Brien show. Uh, so I would be interested to know, first off, how the heck did you get into that? Um, and do you have a funny story to share from your time there? That's my path not taken, right? <laughs> so that was my first startup. Um, I was always involved in sort of journalism in college, and I was sports editor of my college paper. And um, I thought I was going to go multi-platform. This is in like the late 90s. So I was multi-platform, which then didn't mean web so much. It meant like, oh, no, no, excuse me. This is like early 90s, mid 90s. Um, meant cable access. Yeah. So I did a cable access TV show. Um, and I really enjoyed it. So I said, okay, uh, how do I go from minor leagues to major leagues? I was at the time attending uh, Vassar College, which is up in Poughkeepsie. So it's been 90 minutes north of New York City. I had interned a few summers before at NBC working in... Um, uh, primetime ad sales. I thought I was trying to explore whether advertising was an interesting area for me. So I knew some people there and I kind of called them up and I said, I know you usually ask people to take, you know, sort of uh, full-time internships to take sort of a semester off or whatever, or you know, have to be living in New York. But trust me, I can do 40 hours uh, worth of work uh, a week over three days. And um, 
I want to come down and I want to work for Saturday Night Live. And they said, mm. no, you're not going to work for Saturday Night Live. Um, but we'll give you two choices. Uh, Donahue, which uh, I don't know if you know, people know Phil know, Donahue. But, so it was an afternoon. You made a of, much better choice. By it was an afternoon talk show. <laughs> or this late night show that's on at 1.30 in the morning called Conan O'Brien. Frankly, we're not, you know, we, we're not even sure it will last the year. It was on, you know, it was on quarterly renewal cycles. <laughs> um, but for a variety of reasons, that one sounded much better. And so I worked um, with the segment producers, the, essentially the show producers, and the head of research to research upcoming celebrity guests uh, and uh, help write you know, interview questions, occasionally kind of pre-interview the celebrity or their handlers. So I didn't see as much of, like, I wasn't on stage as much. I, you know, uh, I didn't get sort of the to hang out with, with, with Conan, like some of the other kind of uh, uh, folks. But um, uh, I got to see more of my stuff actually make it onto the show. So I did that for my senior year of college, doing it three days a week. Um, probably the biggest, if I look back over all my career decisions, the only one that if I had made all of my decisions by the sort of um, heuristics that I later came to understand would be how I guided my life, uh, I would have stayed on Conan uh, instead of not, um, and we wouldn't know each other. Like the fact that I worked at Google instead of Facebook or blah, 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 like you and I might still be sitting in the same room together having this yeah. podcast, but if I had chosen to stay on Conan, like I wouldn't have moved to San Francisco, I wouldn't have met my wife, I wouldn't have gone into tech. Um, I might have, you know, my boss ended up being the producer of uh, Rosie O'Donnell and, and uh, Ellen's show. Like maybe I would have gone, like who knows what I'd be doing, yeah. but yeah. you know, it was a durable show and, um, and the reason I didn't stay on it um, was out of fear. I felt like uh, I needed to start sort of, you know, earning a living. And um, uh, I went into management consulting for a few years, uh, which taught me I didn't want to be a management consultant. Um, and that was all great. Like, obviously, I have no um, regrets about those choices and, and where they led. But when I sort of tell people to make sure that they're not uh, making career decisions out of fear and they're steering towards things that they believe um, you know, they want to do, they want to be. Uh, if I had applied that at 21, I would have stayed on, uh, stayed on Conan. It was the second season. It was really fun. Oh. It was just sort of finding its legs. And, um, and yeah, so that's what I did. So do you still watch Conan? I didn't watch it then. It was <laughs> on at one thirty in the morning. What was like a, um, it's earlier now. The internet, the, inter- <laughs> the internet has been a boon for late night TV. Yeah. Maybe not for their on-air ratings, but, you know, it's a segmentable show, right? Yeah. So, on YouTube, you know, I watch Conan, I watch sure, uh, yeah. Kimmel, you know, yeah. I watch, uh, you know, Colbert, all these folks. But I watch, you know, three minutes of this interview yep. or that band performance or yeah. the monologue. Um, and so I probably watch, you know, more than I did before, but none of it on television. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, Hunter, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, um, thanks for having me. Before we end, anything that you want to leave anyone with? Anything any, you want to plug? Anything you want to plug? I'm going to be at Caroline's on Thursday night. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I, look, I think um, uh, people who uh, think that we could be, we could be helpful for, for them, we're easy to find, uh, hunter at homebrew.co. Um, but uh, ultimately, you know, I think that there's uh, sometimes you, you're at places where there's incredible optimism in the world and cl- places where there's incredible pessimism. I think there's a lot of things in the world that give me pause right now um, and that we as a technology sector need to take responsibility for sort of doing our part um, to, to, to build a better world. Um, but I'm a techno optimist. I think that the work that we're doing is important and necessary and um, uh, believe that, you know, uh, the the future is going to be brighter. Great. All right. Well, thank you very much, Hunter. This is Morgan from Morgan.xyz. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. 
Scheiße, wo ist mein Kass? 